Hello, welcome back to My Little Tony's. Welcome back. We're finishing up 64. Last time we spent a lot of time talking about the two big shows, but we still have some important shows that premiered this year. I can't believe how many shows of note were this season. Yeah, and something that I thought was kind of interesting, like looking at the season as a whole, is that I feel like now you see when people are talking about like the current state of Broadway, people are like, oh, there are no original musicals anymore. Like it's all based on on movies and whatever, which is like its own issue. But if you look at this slate of musicals that were nominated, the only one that was actually an original concept was Anyone Can Whistle, which is like the biggest flop of the year. Mm -hmm. So like, I feel like there's sort of a differentiation that needs to be made when people talk about, you know, source material for Broadway musicals, where it's like, obviously, like musicals based on like, Mean Girls and Tootsie and like, things that are kind of banking on recognizable intellectual property are like, obviously not going to be as interesting as something that is like, comes from someone like the spark of like a real creative idea but that's not the same as like like an original idea is not necessarily better than adapting something like fun home or like you know the band's visit or something like natasha pier and the great comet of 1812 where it's like something being original doesn't necessarily make it superior to something that has another source material like it's more about what the source material is and why you're turning it into a musical. Yeah, no, totally. I 100% agree. And I also think that I was formerly in, at some points, I feel like I've expressed that opinion. But I think that I've generally been pushing against that idea. Because while you can look at a Broadway year like this and be like, well, so many of the musicals were based on plays. I think that the idea of a play has been like so intellectualized in like the contemporary state where it's like, I think that, you know, some of these plays that, you know, are on Broadway now are like the equivalent of like Mean Girls (laughs) (laughs) or, you know, like something that is more of like a popular success. It's not all like... Beckett and I could see how Edward Albee's talents would translate into like an independent or be like an equivalent of like an independent filmmaker now. Yeah and I mean like the musical this season this 2018-2019 season that is sort of being hailed as like the big creative coup is Town, which is not an original idea you know it's based on like the Orpheus and Eurydice myth so but it's know, so this, funny how people are like it's so it's like you know it's like no it's, it's like, like the like, oldest story exactly. ever <laughs> um so you know originality in musicals is not the number one quality that makes them good yeah i think is probably the takeaway but it's easy like looking at it to be like that is what the issue is is that there's not enough originality and i think that we've actually talked about it on the podcast before but you know i think in the secret life of the american yeah, yeah. musical jack viertel makes like a really good point yeah i think that you had mentioned this before yeah i think we have talked about it but it just struck me like going back to this year which i think you know 1964 is sort of peak golden era or i guess it's close to the end but mm-hmm. like we have all of these stone cold classic shows in here so i think it's something to think about you know he makes this point that movies provide like a perfect template for a musical just based on how they're structured and yeah and <laughs> original musicals have proved to be some of the messiest musicals <laughs> i think over broadway history yeah it must be kind of hard to go into it without any sort of clear guideline yeah well even yeah even thinking about things like pacific overtures which like has like a historic basis but not like a the what it's based off of doesn't have like a very a form. concise formed plot like it just becomes 
messy and there's just a million tangents you could go on. Uh, yeah, I mean, making a musical is so hard. It's like, why would you add this burden to yourself starting, <laughs> like, totally from scratch? Mm-hmm. So anyway, with that said, oh, and the other thing I thought was fun is that talking about Donna Murphy's Tony Wynn in 94 uh, last time, she ended up over the course of her career has played the leads in the biggest hit and the biggest flop of this season because she was in Hello, Dolly, and she was also in the Encore's Anyone Can Whistle concert. So what can't she do? Exactly. (laughs) So let's start with She Loves Me because I think that is maybe the next most famous show this year, and it kind of got robbed, Mm -hmm. um, which we sort of talked about when we were talking about the revival but it didn't even get a best score nomination. It got bumped out for 110 in the shade, which I think is a travesty. Even though those are all like strong scores, but like I think this is one of this is one of my personal favorite scores for sure. Yeah. I think it definitely harkens to the fact that we're at the end of like a golden age era. And like while I think that this in some ways the perfect golden age musical, I think that Especially the score's integration with the book is maybe something that threw people off at the time. I mean, who knows? So She Loved Me opened April 23rd, 1963, closed January 11th, 1964 with 301 performances. Music by Jerry Bach, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick, book by Joe Masteroff, directed by Hal Prince, and musical staging by Carol Haney, who... We know from the pajama game. There isn't a ton of choreography in this show, but it is nice that she came along and did what she had to do. And she was also a funny girl this season. And the source is the 1937 play Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. This story was also the inspiration of the 1940 Jimmy Stewart movie, The Shop Around the Corner. It was also adapted into a 1949 Judy Garland musical in the good old summertime. And it was adapted again in 1998 for... You've Got Mail, which is also one of my favorite movies, even before I had heard of this musical. So I think I just love a good, you know, enemies in real life, but secretly they love each other Mm -hmm. story. And the synopsis is, Amalia and George work together at a modest Hungarian perfumery and have disliked each other from the very beginning. He thinks she's stuck up and she thinks he's arrogant and mean, but each rapturously writes to a lonely heart's pen pal when the workday is done and it doesn't take long for the audience to see that they're in love without realizing it. Aww. <laughs> so it's actually funny because I think that, you know, it's been iterated so many different times, but I, w- I thought it was interesting that the actual, according to Sheldon Harnick, he believes that the actual uh, Laszlo play has never been performed in America. Interesting. Well, they also say that Masteroff was mainly working from the screenplay mm-hmm. of The Shop Around the Corner. They do retain the Hungarian names of the original play, but I think that's pretty much it. It's kind of like a Pygmalion situation, Yeah, I think. Yeah, there, I guess there's not much to suggest you know, at least in the production that I saw of, you know, it being hungry besides the names. A little bit of the backstory to the production is that Bach and Harnick were already working on um, what would eventually become Fiddler on the Roof, but was still called Tevia and his daughters, I think. And that was like a passion project of theirs. And then they were approached to adapt the shop around the corner. And it said they were so charmed by the idea that they couldn't say no. I think, I think like you could do a drinking game by how many times we're going to say the word charming when talking about this show. Because it is extremely charming. And so Hal Prince was like, you should wait until Jerome Robbins is available before you try to do Fiddler. The project had been around for at least 10 years. Um, and in like the mid-50s, Cole Porter had said he was like it was his next project. But it never ended up happening. And they teamed up 
up with Joe Masteroff, who was a playwright who had never written a musical book before, but he ended up writing two of the best musical books of the 60s, which were this and Cabaret, or maybe two of the best musical books ever. Yeah, and it's actually so funny because in a lot of the shop dialogue, it reminded me of in Cabaret, in the original production of Cabaret, there is a song that has subsequently been cut called the Telephone Song, where it's like all of, it's kind of like this choreographed rhythmic, like hearkening back to even maybe something like the opening of The Music Man, where like everyone's kind of having these like, the rhythm of these conversations that everyone's having is kind of creating a music of its own. Yeah. Um, And I feel like a lot of the kind of like interstitial shop numbers of She Loves Me reminds me of that. And it's like, I wonder if that's like a Joe Masteroff Well, they actually talk about how their method of working with him was not unlike, um, I think, the way that Sondheim works with a lot of his librettists, where... So this is from To Broadway to Life, the musical theater of Bach and Harnick. Previously, Bach and Harnick had worked with librettists who would write a scene and put in parentheses that there could be a song at such a point about such and such a subject. For this project, however, they decided to try something different. Harnick recalls, Joe Masteroff, the playwright, had never written a musical before, and what we asked him to do was kind of an experiment all the way around. He was to write a play and let us search through the scenes and find the emotional moments or comic moments, which we thought could be well expressed in song, and that is the way we did it. I don't think Joe ever wrote in a scene that there should be a song there. Bach and Harnick found Masteroff's initial effort to be drenched with music and took advantage of many opportunities to convert dialogue into song lyrics. It was, said Harnick, like looking at a raisin cake and plucking out pieces of fruit. That's so cute. I know. That 100% reads to me. Yeah, like it's just so, and I, I think that's part of what is so good about it is that it's so seamlessly integrated. The music is so seamlessly integrated. Yeah, an interesting bit from this Harnick interview is, the story is just so drenched with emotion that our problem was being selective, not writing too much music. In fact, when we opened out of town, we found that we had about 45 minutes of music to cut. Probably if we were writing that show today, we would try to follow the Andrew Lloyd Webber route and do it as a wall-to-wall music. But we didn't think in those terms then, so we did it as a musical that was just filled with music. That's so interesting that he uh, thinks it would... I mean, I think it would work as a totally sung-through piece, but I think the book is so... And that's kind of what struck me, like, seeing the revival, is that, like, the book is still so strong and very sharp. Like, it doesn't feel dated or hokey at all i would even say it feels a little sharper and more contemporary than even hello dolly's book oh actually hell prince says that because he this was his first it wasn't his first musical he directed he came in to rescue a john kander show out of town but this was his first one he had directed from beginning to end and before this he had done like a regional production of the matchmaker um and he said that he feels like she loves me is closer to the matchmaker in tone and content than hello dolly is which i thought was an interesting comment oh that is interesting so julie andrews was originally offered the role of amalia um, but she was shooting a movie at the time, and she asked that they delay it, and they decided not to. But Hal Prince said that if they had waited those six months, the show might have run for three years, and that was kind of a decision that killed them. That's kind of a bummer. Because they got they got good reviews, but um, like all of the reviews were comparing it to dessert. Yeah, and that in the New York Times review, like the metaphor of describing it as a dessert goes on like three paragraphs so long (laughs) and they're not the only ones who did that so whether or not a marquee name would have helped at the box office she loves me may simply have been a victim of its own fluffy reviews critics expressed their affections using confectionery metaphors they called the show a bonbon new york times a rich plum cake newsday 
and a delicious pastry decorated with wonderful intricate dabs and curls of musical frosting, Daily News, telling a warm, appealing story dripping of sentimentality like a chocolate drop, Hollywood Reporter, filled with all the rich Middle European pastry stuffing of a bygone day, Saturday Review. They gave the impression that the show was light and frothy, lacking dramatic or artistic substance. In fact, the show's genuine appeal comes from its sophistication, from the richness of musical invention, the vividness of characterization, and the close integration of music and drama. Potential ticket buyers for this type of show may have been turned away by the nature of the critical reception. Such an audience pool is limited anyway, as Harnick has observed. She Loves Me has immense appeal for very sophisticated theatergoers and for very sensitive people. Once we begin to run out of those, the show goes downhill. That's actually a really good point that I hadn't necessarily thought of. And like reading the reviews of it, it makes a lot of sense. The show that I know and saw like does not necessarily translate. Like it's just like I feel like they, the reviewers like fell asleep during the show and they're like, <laughs> uh, it's a Hungarian pastry. Yeah. And Hal Prince actually says that during the second act, there was like a mistake where a scrim got caught for several minutes and they had to sort of like stop and start the show. And he was like, you lost the momentum, which is the most important thing in a show like this and he was like after that you know I started having critics staggered and not all coming at opening night Mm -hmm. which is now like a common practice but I thought that was interesting that it was the the failure of she loves me that really made him be like we can't have so much writing on this one performance that um is a good instinct it's actually another funny hello goodolly uh connection is that Gower Champion was also originally they tried to get him but he was committed to another show at the time I think the right director had the right project for this one yeah no Gower champion is so domineering because he was like such a towering figure at that point and hal prince was like i'm trying to prove my chops as a director so i think he was like a little more timid in his approach and really like respectful to the material yeah it's like funny to imagine hello dolly getting the she loves me treatment <laughs> and she loves me getting like the dancing waiter <laughs> yeah that's not what although they do both have big you know centerpieces at a restaurant yeah so this is another this is actually from that article that we read a little bit from last time where they were in the 90s kind of reflecting on its original failure in the 60s and by failure you know it did run for 300 performances but it lost money and but romantic as she loves me is there is a darkness to the material around the edges the original hungarian play was primarily the story of marichek the shop owner when samson Raphaelson wrote the screenplay for the 1940 movie he shifted the focus to the would-be lovers for all the romance harsh reality is never far away people are desperate for work desperate for love manipulative there is betrayal and attempted suicide When the movie was released, the refined middle Europa of the 1930s was being destroyed by World War II. Lubitsch, a director who had come to America from Europe, suggests darkness in all the corners of the piece. Mr. Masteroff set out to write his libretto by essentially bypassing the Marichek-centered play and working from the 1940 movie. I was always fascinated with the thought, he said, the show took place about 1938, and I said in two years a lot of the people are going to be dead or their lives totally ruined, and it fascinated me. It gave the material such another twist that there was always that underlying darkness. And maybe some some of the cynicism in the script came from that. So I think that is like a really interesting contextual detail to this show. Yeah, that really is. And also another connection to Cabaret. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I think that is really something like even though it's not really in the text, there is sort of that aura of darkness about it that is like you wouldn't necessarily articulate it if just from seeing it, but it, it makes sense kind of thinking about it that way. Yeah, well, I think too, like this whole decision by the reviewers to describe it as so fluffy, it's like Mr. Marichek commits suicide. Or he yeah, tries, he tries yes. to. <laughs> yeah. I think it is people 
not wanting to see below the surface of something that seems like light and sweet and romantic. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it's been noteworthy that diving into the most happy fella and also she loves me around the same time has been an interesting experience. Like, I think that they are in conversation in a way that I didn't necessarily suspect. Maybe I also, since I didn't know either show particularly well, I had some like confusion about the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. But I think that they are now two of my favorite shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I agree. And I think like I originally got into them around the same time. And I think there's something very almost ahead of their time about them and very universal about human behavior where it's like there are songs about how, you know, I'm not sure about this guy that I've been corresponding with, like if he's going to like me in real life Mm -hmm. like that is so um relevant to like the way that people really meet each other now in a way that you wouldn't expect and like wanting to be seen for who you really are versus the persona that you present I think those are incredibly like timeless and very relatable themes and like extremely well expressed in both of those shows yeah well yeah it is you know this is totally off topic but (laughs) you know I think this like idea of online dating I think that it's been totally normalized in the past like 10 years but you know it's been happening you know these lonely hearts clubs are it kind of surprises you yeah because i think we don't necessarily with both of the shows i think that the rawness and also the like humanness of the characters are surprising especially since i think that it's hard to shake this idea that the people who are in these like texts that were written at the mid-century are going to always be like so sweet and like simple and two-dimensional yeah and it's like the this desperation to connect with another person is like it's a tale as old as time um this is another interesting part of the sheldon harnick interview which relates back to the show's just general run when we opened we got nice reviews and we thought good we're here for two or three years then little by little business fell off which we didn't understand and i still don't understand i just went downhill i asked marjorie gray who is now my wife and who i think has second sight How long will we run? Tell me that we'll hit at least 300 performances, because otherwise it'll just be too disastrous. She said it will run about 302, 304 performances, which is exactly what we ran. We closed, and it was very depressing for about a year, because there was no activity in summer stock or amateur. We thought it was dead. I couldn't understand it. The show in which I invested such affection... In fact, I missed out on a good thing. I didn't go to the Grammy Awards because I thought it would be another disappointment, and we won. Then about a year later, there was a production, I can't remember where, it might have been Bucks County, and Jerry Bach and I got a surprising letter from the company. It said, we don't understand why the show closed because it's absolutely delightful and our audiences love it. We began to get more of those letters. It took a while, but we discovered it had become a cult show, which was nice. From that, it's graduated into the ranks of shows which are regularly done in all-size theaters. It's certainly one of my favorite shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it's everyone who worked on it has said that it it's sort of like the project closest to their heart. But one of my personal favorite things about the show is that it's kind of structured like a little night music where it's like you do have roles that are sort of the definitive leads but it it really is an ensemble piece where like every character really gets a chance to express themselves through song Mm -hmm. this is from jesse green's review of the um revival in vulture but i thought it was like a really beautiful way of of describing what is like special about the score each character gets a song or two 
all of which, in mostly comic terms, pin them to the plot while providing a feeling of richness, if not schmaltz, to the show's texture. Most classic musicals have a so-called charm song, She Loves Me Has Nothing But. Unlike other charm songs, though, the ones in She Loves Me are completely specific. Plot-nailing titles include Vanilla Ice Cream, No More Candy, Tonight at Eight, A Trip to the Library, and Where's My Shoe? (laughs) Their lyrics by Sheldon Harnick marry gentle wit to character development with the highest technical polish. His rhymes get laughs, not because they're tricky, but because they're so apt. In I Don't Know His Name, Amalia sings, When I undertook this correspondence, little did I know I'd grow so fond, little did I know our views would so correspond. These nearly prose observations miraculously sit on music by Jerry Bach that maintains their contours while flowering into arias of enormous beauty, especially for Amalia, who has a heavy stack of them to sell, which I think is a really nice way to put it. You think this is probably your favorite Bach and Harnick score, right? Um, yeah, I do. I think so. You know, as a proud Jewish (laughs) woman, you know, I think Fiddler is obviously very special, but this is like special in a different way. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I think I just love this this story and this style of story. I think, you know, my love of You've Got Mail and The Most Happy Fella, I think these musicals, you know that the characters like really do know each other and like sort of the things that are keeping them apart are their own fears and like their own mm-hmm. ego. And, and I think that's very, uh, that's very profound to me, like and very moving. Yeah, no, totally. I think that they've just had like an interesting career as far as successes and failures and you know middle successes go (laughs) like it's interesting that this was the cast album that won the grammy that year whereas it's also interesting that fiorello ended up winning the The pulitzer Pulitzer. (laughs) it's an interesting thing to like be reading sheldon harnick's like timeline of oh yeah like i decided that i didn't want to be a rehearsal pianist and i wanted to write lyrics i like wrote a couple songs for some reviews then i like (laughs) won the pulitzer prize (laughs) then i had like a you know amazing show that was like semi-successful won a grammy wrote like one of the biggest musicals ever and then kind of just doing it yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah, it is a very interesting career timeline. And something I didn't know until researching it for this round is that it came extremely close to being made into a movie starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. And Maurice Chevalier would play would have played Marichek. And the only reason it didn't happen was that MGM went under some restructuring and, and they dropped it because it was, you know, going to be an expensive project. But like... I'm so sad that Julie Andrews never got to play this role and she came so close. Even seeing Laura Benanti do it, it's like, as a soprano, I feel like this is the, like, creme de la creme. (laughs) No, totally. This is one of the dream roles. You know, this is not like a deep textual analysis of it but i in the back of our much love the secret <laughs> life of american musical he kind of gives like a recommendation of which recordings to listen to and he has such a sweet little like roundup of the original cast which barbara cook mm-hmm. hearing her sing it it's just too sweet it's beautiful it is it is one of the perfect cast albums i think It's one of the ones I'll go to if I'm, like, wanting to listen to something beginning to end. The original cast album, issued on a double LP by MGM, a company that didn't do much in the way of Broadway albums, is a joy from start to finish. It's arguably Bach and Harnick's best score, featuring Barbara Cook singing Ice Cream and the artlessly irresistible Barbara Baxley delivering one of the best story songs ever written, A Trip to the Library. Jack Cassidy, playing the cad, 
has a lounge lizard charm, and the orchestrator, Don Walker, makes use of the accordion since the show was set in Budapest and played at the Eugene O'Neill where the pit wasn't big enough to accommodate a grand piano. I take a deep breath before writing these words, but this, I think, is a perfect cast album. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with that. So we sort of talked about how it was kind of lost. I mean, the cast album was definitely like a cult favorite, but it was the um, 90s revival that I think kind of brought it back into the public consciousness and is now like it is performed a lot more, I think, because of uh, rediscovering it. This is from the Bach and Harnick book, and this is the reflections of the creative team on it. No longer a cult show, She Loves Me has finally established itself as one of the most artful and imaginative American musicals, as tuneful and colorful as Rodgers and Hammerstein, as musically rich and sophisticated as the best of Bernstein or Lesser. For its creators, She Loves Me has finally provided the kind of satisfaction that unaccountably eluded them during its initial Broadway run. They have even dared to speak of it in the same breath as some of their subsequent work that was more commercially successful. Harold Prince, one of the most acclaimed producer-directors in Broadway history, wrote in 1974 that She Loves Me was one of the best things this office has done, and as far as I'm concerned, it's as well-directed as anything I've ever done. Joe Masteroff, whose subsequent show, Cabaret, would win the Tony for Best Musical in 1967, remarked in 1994, all of us went on right from She Loves Me to do enormously successful gold mines of musicals. And yet, speaking for myself, and I think for Jerry and Sheldon, She Loves Me is the one that really is closest to our hearts. Listening to Masteroff make this comment during a three-way interview, I, I think this is the one that we've referenced many <laughs> times, um, Bach and Harnick agreed, although Harnick quickly added, along with Fiddler, I have to say. She Loves Me and Fiddler on the Roof have emerged as strikingly different but comparably compelling masterworks in the center of Bach and Harnick's seven-show corpus. Fiddler is the commanding presence whose scope and impact are bigger than itself. She Loves Me is the dear friend whose warm company never grows old. (laughs) So I guess what we're saying, if you don't know She Loves Me, there's a great recorded performance of it from the 2016 revival. The original cast album's great. Bring it to your community (laughs) theater now. Yes. You know, Ethan Morden always has a way with words. He says, then this is from um, Open a New Window, the Broadway musical in the 1960s. I saw She Loves Me on a Wednesday afternoon in a sea of matinee mavens. And while this much abused group talks too much and doesn't get the jokes, the ladies love a good story. So when George at stage left sang out his third letter to Dear Friend and Amalia came into view at stage right singing the words along with him as she read his letter... The entire audience went, oh, (laughs) the nemeses are lovers. That's sweet. It's comic, too, but not in the way musical comedies usually are. There are no gags, only character comedy, and the humor seeps into the lyrics of even love songs. And then he says, The show never makes money, but it keeps being done. Is it too subtle a piece? Too intelligent? Too soft? Too lovely? Can a musical be too integrated? It's a superb story, superbly told, an acknowledged glory of the day. The production now is gone, and the score is just a cast album. She Loves Me is a classic because it will always surprise a willing public. Remember my matinee, ladies? As She Loves Me reaches its curtain, George and Amalia are leaving the store on Christmas Eve. They're about to part company. But he knows that he's dear friend, and we know that he's dear friend. Now she has to know. So he quietly sings to her the words of the letter she composed during ice cream. Now she knows. And as Barbara Cook turned to Daniel Massey with a look at once relieved, ecstatic, and terrified... The Eugene O'Neill Theater broke into tremendous applause even before Cook reached Massey's arms for the curtain tableau. I was waiting for that, those women were saying. You presented a lovely tale in a unique way, and I now realize that if I am to be stimulated, inspired, and touched, it needn't be a musical play that does it. Musical comedy can have magic moments, too. Oh, that's <laughs> so beautiful. I know. Yeah, I think that 
speaking of that like last moment too i think that someone uh, i think actually the secret life of the american musical does make a comment that like the ending is so small when it's like we've kind of gotten to this place where we think of like the ending of a musical has to like kind of mirror the opening number but like the i think that smallness and subtlety just like really just break your heart it reminds <laughs> me of that george wolf quote from that round table where he's like the beauty of the american musical is where it's like music meets dance meets spectacle but the spectacle doesn't have to be a helicopter landing like the spectacle can just be the human heart and i yeah. think that really like describes this show and that makes sense coming from the guy who ended caroline and changed the way <laughs> caroline or changed the way that he did yeah exactly okay so what do you think uh they should have performed hmm. do you need a minute because yeah. I, I have mine yeah you go first okay so i think they should do the one two punch of um tonight at eight and i don't know his name because it's like both of them sort of talking about their anxieties of meeting each other for the date. Mm -hmm. And I think those are two of the most fun and charming and sweet songs in it, where you have like the, his kind of patter song that has these very clever, like very true to character lyrics of him kind of spiraling about what he thinks the date is going to be. I wish I knew exactly how I'll act and what will happen when we dine tonight at eight. I know I'll drop the silverware, but will I spill the water or the wine tonight at eight? Tonight I'll walk right up and sit right down beside the smartest girl in town And then it's anybody's guess More and more I'm reading less and less In my imagination I can hear our conversation taking shape Tonight at eight I'll sit there saying absolutely nothing Or I'll jabber like an ape Tonight at eight Two more minutes, three more seconds, ten more when this is done if something's ended or begun and if it goes all right who knows i might propose tonight at and then you have amalia and alona singing this great female duet counterpoint song about their different like approaches to love mm -hmm. i think it's a good um encapsulation of the charms of she loves me yeah no i totally agree doesn't much matter, but his personal habits are more important than his looks. Supposing he snores like a locomotive, supposing he grinds his teeth, supposing he's a knuckle-cracker, Amalia, good luck with your books. And another small detail that you haven't yet mentioned, I am speaking of sex, dear, when you and he are all alone. Come to think of it, maybe you're right, maybe it doesn't matter at that. Maybe I do much better myself with a library card and a gramophone. They um, performed I Don't Know His Name in 94, right? They did. Hmm. I I don't know. I feel really I'm looking at <laughs> all of the songs and I, I feel a little stuck. I feel like I do love vanilla ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. He brought me ice cream. Vanilla ice cream. Imagine that. Ice cream. And for the first time, we were together without a spat. Friendly. He was so friendly. That isn't like him. I'm simply stuck. Wonders never cease, will wonder 
waves never cease. It's been a most peculiar day. Will wonders never cease? Will wonders never cease? Oh, where was I? I am so sorry about last night. It was a nightmare in every way, but together you and I will have last night someday. I mean, they did, for the 2016 Tonys, they did Vanilla Ice Cream and She Loves Me. So Maybe know. that's what I'll do. She loves me, and to my amazement, I love it, knowing that she loves me. She loves me, true she doesn't show it. How could she, when she doesn't know it? Yesterday she loathed me, bah! Now today she likes me, ha! And tomorrow, tomorrow... Also, like, to go back to it being so charming, <laughs> you can't look at, like, the track listings without, like, smiling, because all of the songs, as was previously noted, have, like, the silliest, cutest titles. <laughs> I don't need to see his handsome brother. I was taken in by someone's friend. His manly friend. I was taken in by someone's friend. Is it each letter? How I could have used one love revealing letter. I hope you do much better. I think the next few have not quite stood the test of time the way that She Loves Me has. So the last Best Musical nominee was High Spirits. High Spirits opened on April 7th, 1964 and closed on February 27th, 1965 after 375 performances. Book, music, and lyric by Timothy Gray and Hugh Martin. Um, it was directed by Noel Coward, musical staging by Danny Daniels, and an additional direction uncredited for Goward Champion. And it was based on Noel Coward's uh, 1941 play Blythe Spirit, and the synopsis is, Writer Charles Condomine hosts a seance conducted by medium Madame Arcati in the hope that he will learn her tricks so he can use the information in his new novel. His assumption that she is a fake is proven wrong when she falls into a trance and unwittingly conjures the spirit of his late wife, Elvira, although he alone can see her. His present wife, Ruth, believes that Charles is joking until Elvira moves into the Condomine household and proves her presence by performing poltergeist-type pranks. Elvira's plan to kill Charles so he can join her in the beyond backfires when she accidentally disposes of Ruth instead, and before long, the two female apparitions are disrupting their former husband's life with their constant nagging and bickering. <laughs> I had no idea that Blythe Spirit was ever made into a musical until we started researching for this. But mm -hmm. I remember, like, I saw the, the Last Revival, but I actually, um, my parents took me to see, like, a local production of it when I was around 11, and I remember being like, no one in the world has ever been as cultured as I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I was kind of bored by it. I did think, I think it's kind of, it's fun, um, but it's all, it's very long. Yeah, I have, like, a, I've listened to, like, an uh, audio-recorded audio play version of it, and, yeah, I like it. I think that, you know, with the rule of, like, if something's already perfect, don't 
don't turn <laughs> it into a musical. I don't necessarily think Blythe Spirit is perfect. I think that, you know, it had room to get developed further. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, you know, the way that they reconfigured it for the musical kind of made sense. Yeah. But I think, I and I read this quote... I think it was talking about 110 in the Shade, where it's like some of these shows based on plays like have sort of rendered the plays obsolete. Like the matchmaker never really gets produced anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Green Grow the Lilacs, which is what Oklahoma is based on, does not get produced. But um, Blythe Spirit definitely gets produced way more yeah. than High Spirit. <laughs> so I think that kind of speaks to the the shelf life of this show. Yeah, and I guess I was surprised that Noel Coward didn't write the music and lyrics. No, and he wrote the music and lyrics to a different show this season, uh-huh. The Girl Who Came to Supper, which is weird. Yeah. Um, but I was surprised listening to it how much... I like I think I kind of expected it to be sort of droll and like too clever but Mm -hmm. it actually it's like an extremely like jazzy and fun score no totally I think that when I like was trying to conceive what it would sound like I was you know imagining like Noel Coward or a Cole Porter type or you know like Cole Porter without the jazz hold the the jazz but no it's completely fun it's very strange because all of the songs are very short is something that i uh, noticed while listening to it but there are definitely some bangers in there yeah i think there are some songs that you could like throw on at a cocktail party and no one would uh would notice the difference but (laughs) i think maybe it's just because tammy grimes sounds a lot like eartha kit Mm -hmm. you better love me while you may tomorrow But I think the big reason behind this adaptation was that it was the return to the stage of Beatrice Lilly, who was this season actually had two shows that were vehicles for like pre-Oklahoma, like pre-integrated musical comedy stars. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was one of them. And she played Madame Arcati, the medium, and that role was expanded um, to accommodate her. And she hadn't been in a musical since 1948. So everyone was very excited to see her again. It's actually so interesting because just kind of trying to figure out the context of like who she was doing the background research of this show you know so many of her like big hits like feel so old in comparison (laughs) to like anything else it's like kind of amazing to be at this point this juncture in time when you could still have people like Bert Lahr on stage yeah doing their thing (laughs) another piece of trivia is that Christopher Walken was in the chorus for the show going by Ronnie Walken oh my god (laughs) So Ethan Morton in his book, I don't know how, like, I'm not a Noel Coward scholar. I don't know how controversial or, like, taken for granted this interpretation is. But he says that Blythe Spirit and, you know, by extension, High Spirits is a metaphor for, like, a gay man in a, you know, closeted marriage who has, like, an ex-boyfriend come back and disrupt his life. Which I think, I think that's kind of a valid reading of it, but he's like, that is what this show is about. It's like, all right, pump the brakes there. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily, uh, I, but you know, I thought it was, I thought that was interesting. No, it is kind of funny. And it, I think it kind of makes sense to have like a Tammy Grimes in the mix with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he says that it plays a lot better on the album than it does um, on stage, which I think is, you know, very common and probably why it, one of many reasons why it does not really get produced. 
And, you know, um, we were talking about how we would have liked to see Angela Lansbury perform because she did, you know, she played Madame Arcati in the revival of Bly Spirit about 10 years ago, but how much we would have liked to hear her do some of these songs because Bee Lily does really sound like her. Like, it just mm-hmm. it's just a role for that type of actress. If your heart starts to pound and your head spins around and you fall to the ground in the dust, just pick yourself up, brush yourself off. Stick out your tongue at the people who stop. Rhythm's a thing, don't miss a beat. Whistle Ravel as you roll down the street. Something that I read that people seem to be very strongly about is to make sure you get the Broadway recording and not the <laughs> London cast recording. <laughs> I don't really have anything else to say about this. Do you, no. What do you think? What's your choice for what they should have performed? Um, that is was a very easy decision, and I would say Home Sweet Heaven. I agree. That's a fun name dropping list song where um, Elvira is talking about all like the cool people she gets to hang out with (laughs) in heaven. Yeah. And you know, I think that's a good, I think that's sort of like an obscure or maybe it's not obscure, but like add it to your, you know, cabaret act. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a good little showcase for a jazz singing actress. I'll miss the love and laughter rippling and the tippling. So I think the last like significant musical this year that pushed She Loves Me out of the best score category is 110 in the Shade. Do you say 110 in the Shade or 110 in the Shade? I say 110 in the Shade. I don't remember how they say it in the in the score. I'm sure either way is fine. So 110 in the Shade, it opened on October 24th, 1963, closed on October 8th, 1964. Um, with 330 performances. The book was by N. Richard Nash, music by Harvey Schmidt, lyrics by Tom Jones, based on the 1954 play The Rainmaker by N. Richard Nash. And the synopsis is, based on Nash's 1954 play The Rainmaker, it focuses on Lizzie Curry, a spinster living on a ranch in the American Southwest, and her relationships with the local sheriff, File, a cautious divorcee who fears being hurt again, and charismatic con man Bill Starbuck, posing as a rainmaker who promises the locals he can bring relief to the drought-stricken area. So this is by um, the composers of The Fantastics, which was, you know, obviously a big smash hit, and I think this was their their follow-up, mm. or it was pretty soon after. Yeah. Then they went on to do I Do, I Do. Yes, they did. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting what kind of a life this show has had. Like, I think it could have easily faded into obscurity, but it's actually had, like, several major productions. And I think the one that has kind of at least put it on my radar was the Audra McDonald roundabout production about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe maybe more at this point and they made a cast album of that but listening to this uh album i was like surprised at how old-fashioned it sounded like if you had told me that that was from the 1940s i would have been like 
I believe you. Yeah, no, I think even before knowing about who, like, kind of just knowing it, it just seemed like such an old-fashioned thing. Yeah, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, I thought the score was very lovely, Mm -hmm. um, but it it doesn't seem as modern. And even though the other shows, like, are sort of written in a pastiche... They're, like, all of the other shows are also set in the past. Like, they're all period pieces. But this was the only one that really felt... Something about the vocal arrangements, maybe, or even just the quality of the recording. Mm-hmm. I was like, this seems much older than the rest of them. Yeah, and I think that this show was referenced during a later season. I think maybe even, I think, in conversation... In a conversation about the musical Baby in the 80s, where they were like, it's amazing that, like, shows of this scale, and they referenced 110 uh... specifically... There were between like High Spirits, uh, She Loves Me, and One Ten in the Shade. Like, there were like three shows that weren't necessarily hits, but they ran for over three hundred performances. It's true, and I think it's kind of an interesting thing to be like, because I think that this is a musical, um, probably even less so than She Loves Me. That just the scale of it feels so tiny, yeah, and, and intimate. I thought it was interesting how it seems like. It's sort of like like anyone can whistle is sort of like the demented version of this in terms of some of the plot. Like they both feature kind of this like closed off spinster-esque character who learns to kind of open herself up from this, you know, mysterious con man who kind of comes to town. Although they're also, the town is already conning other people in a water-related con. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's funny that the two of them are are in the same season. Yeah, and it also feels funny to have it in the same season as The Ballad of the Sad Cafe because mm. that's also kind of this, like, has these, like, gothic elements to it about the alienation one experiences while being, like, a spinster in a dusty town. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if there's too much more to say about this. I thought it was cute that uh, they it had a young Leslie Ann Warren in it playing a character named Snooky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like... When they were writing it, this is one of those shows where, like, they wrote as many or more songs that got cut than ended up in it, which I think is always interesting. Mm-hmm. So it got four nominations for Best Score, Best Actress, Best Featured Actor, and Best Director. So that is it's a contender, even though it didn't get nominated for Best Musical. And it had sort of a tepid response in Boston in its out-of-town tryout. The New York Times review was very negative. Howard Taubman said, Everybody prays for rain, but in 110 in the shade, there is not much more than tears. Although this new musical play, which opened last night, is as dry as the parched land outside the Broadhurst Theater, there is no danger that even a lightning bolt could ignite it. The Rainmaker was a play that had a touch of magic. It has disappeared in this adaptation and been replaced by the surface effects that our musical theater practices so knowingly. Effects, unfortunately, cannot substitute for warmth, humor, or enchantment. It's cold at 110 in the shade and tearful. It's good that they overcame that review to even run 300 performances. Yeah, it's also kind of like I think that thinking of a show like this and I don't think that I'm like being dramatic by saying this, but I think Boston's a really hard place to try out a show that has like a dark edge to it. Yeah, well, that, and... that was the Broadway review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I also just think that like, Howard Taubman put the stake in a lot of things. Yeah, he was really a real grump. I feel like the, like, litmus test of a lot of these shows is, like, would I or wouldn't I go see it if it was, like, being produced locally? Mm -hmm. I would see this. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I guess there's not a lot that I wouldn't see. (laughs) Maybe it's not a good... That's not a good test. You wouldn't see Spamalot. (laughs) You know what? 
if it was under twenty five dollars, yeah, I would, would consider it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would eat an enormous edible and just ride. Did you have a, a song that you think? Uh, yes. I loved, it's, I guess it's not the opening number, but I loved Lizzie's Coming to Town. So did I. <laughs> when Lizzie is here, when Lizzie is here, I kind of forget I'm dumb. And Lizzie is coming home, Lizzie is on the way, Lizzie's arriving today. Got to get busy, fix up for Lizzie, Lizzie's coming home. I thought that was very cute. I also liked um, the rain song, which I think is a good counterpoint again to "Simple and Anyone Can Whistle," which mm-hmm. is you know this guy coming in and getting everyone all worked up. <laughs> it's gonna rain over the morning. It's gonna rain over the night. It's gonna rain over tomorrow. And Lord God Almighty, now won't that be a sight? There's cotton out there that'll grow. There are rivers that'll overflow. There's dying cattle that'll rise right up and live. It's gonna rain a month of Sundays. Gonna rain both day and night. Gonna rain with all its might. Gonna rain if you'll just let me do my chimelo. nimble. I guess do we want to talk about Foxy a little bit? Uh, yes. So Foxy opened on February 16th, 1964 and closed on April 18th, 1964 after only 72 performances. It had a book by Ian McLellan Hunter and Ring Lardner Jr., uh, music by Robert Emmett Dolan, and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. And it was directed by Robert Lewis and choreographed by the legendary Jack Cole. And it was based on Ben Johnson's 1605 play Volpone. Based on Ben Johnson's Volpone, it transports the play's setting of early 17th century Renaissance Venice to the Yukon during the gold rush of 1898, when prospector Jim Fox confides in Buddy's bedrock shortcut and buzzard that he's discovered a mother load in the Klondike River, they set off to claim it as their own. Foxy and conman Doc Mosk join forces to swindle the greedy trio out of their stolen wealth. So this show does not have a uh, cast recording, <laughs> so it's kind of hard to really get a sense of what it was like. Bert Lair, how do you say it? Is I think it Bert Lair or Bert Lar? Tom's been saying Bert Lar. Okay, let's say it and let's yeah. go with that. Yeah, so he won Best Actor, even though it was, I think it was long closed at this point. Oh, uh, no, it wasn't. It, I mean, it was closed, but yeah. not long closed. Yeah, it had just closed. Yeah, and he really, in reading um, from his son, John. John Lar is his son? Yeah. Oh, wow. They really, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, they really look alike. <laughs> uh, yeah, his son, John Lar. Lair. We just got to pick one and stick to it. John Lar. Okay. John Lair. <laughs> John Lair. Okay. okay. Um, so in John Lair's uh, book about his father, Notes on a Cowardly Lion, he gives like a pretty good detailed breakdown of everything that happened. And I think that the craziest thing about it was that two years before it came to Broadway, there was like a preview period in the Yukon where like the show was brought there to kind of stimulate tourism for the like summer Yukon tourism. But like it didn't really work. And a fun fact, Beatrice Lilly was there at the opening 
night performance to introduce it but while the show was running it mostly just played to native americans who were you know live up in the yukon yeah no one could get to the theater and actually bert lar <laughs> was afraid of flying so he like took like the craziest travel arrangements to get there and it took him like two weeks to get all the way out there i think that he ultimately became the author of this musical and was also the only thing that anyone really (laughs) noted in it but there was like a lot of a lot of him rewriting the script and them like trying to push back on him (laughs) one really funny little instance of that is when foxy enters the stage into the yukon saloon he was supposed to come in and say how far out, I guess in like reference to like the slang of the day. And then he like changed the uh, line where like he walks in and like comments on like a picture of a naked woman. And they're like, why don't you use far out? And he was like, because it's not funny. And then they got in a big fight about it. And then he called David Merrick and he like would just like constantly, like whenever he had a disagreement with them, he would call the producer David Merrick and try to get him to change it. But (laughs) apparently like he was magnificent in it and they eventually had to just be like well I guess like we just have to do whatever he wants us to do a little quote from the Times Review is if you admire Burt Lair and it's un-American not to you know Foxy is for you it does not fret over refinements of plot and characterization but it wears its crudities with a grin and has delightful professional gusto and can more be asked for in this veil of crises than to have Burt Lair back on stage mugging shamelessly or being as delicate as a discount at an unexpectedly rowdy lawn party. And that review, like every other statement about the play, attested to Lair's position in the theater. It also pointed out the curious old-fashioned form of Foxy. The enjoyment was primarily Lair's doing, and the structure bore his fingerprints too. So not surprising, it has never been revived. Yeah. So like it got really strong reviews, but it ended up closing because David Merrick you know, naturally all of his attention was on his big fat hit, Hello Dolly. So they kind of were just like floundering around by themselves and then he closed it. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's probably the only show that has had tryouts in the Yukon. <laughs> but it actually reminds me of something interesting where um, the people who wrote Urine Town, who I am not going to name check because I don't know their <laughs> names, but they, like, when they were working on other shows, would go to, like, random small towns in Alaska and, like, do a tryout there because they were, like, the best thing about that is that everyone comes to see the show in town because it's like a small town Mm -hmm. and the fact that there's something going on it's a big deal and then you could literally just like go into the grocery store and like talk to anyone about like the show and like everyone's giving you their opinions about it (laughs) that's so fun but i mean that's a good idea so the other musical that had an acting winner was the girl who came to supper which was the musical we mentioned before with book and lyrics by Noel Coward. And it was based on the play The Sleeping Prince, which was also adapted into a Marilyn Monroe movie called The Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. And uh, and it got very bad reviews. They were like, this is just trying to be my fair lady. But the Tony winner was a peripheral character. Fish and chips peddler Ada Cockle (laughs) appears to be present solely to entertain the audience with a rousing 15 minute rendition of traditional Cockney tunes. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, and that actress was Tessie O'Shea, 
So I think that's interesting to reward that kind of performance that's just like bringing on this performer who is not like a, you know, a musical theater performer to kind of just like do their thing for 15 minutes, not really related to this show and then get off the stage. Yeah, and I think that in thinking of like category frauds that we've recognized in the past, I think some people do have this like understanding or like thought that like whoever wins featured or supporting actor or actress, like thinking of like even Andrea Martin and Pippin, it's like you kind of just like are on, you sing that like one song, you like kind of bring the house down and then like yeah. you're off. Versus, like, sometimes when, like, people who are literally, like... The lead. Yeah. I mean, I think the prime example is Daisy Egan in The Secret Garden. Exactly. Who was put into supporting, but it worked. Yeah, no, I think that, like, I always love a performance like that. Yeah, and she was, you know, an, an imported British music hall singer and comedian. So I guess, you know, New York audiences were ready to just, like, lap up that style of, of performance and, and humor. Yeah, it's interesting to because, you know, the musical's such an American thing that they're it's interesting to like note what does get transferred over from London, especially between the 50s and the 60s. Well, if you have a swanky club just for me to the nearest pop, a little of what you can see that you and I'd like to mention the last musical that unfortunately we're not really going to talk about is the big flop of the season anyone can whistle which is Stephen Sondheim's first giant flop when he wrote the music and lyrics um, and Arthur Lawrence wrote the book and directed it you know I would love to talk about this show for like an hour but it's not really in our jurisdiction (laughs) but (laughs) it starred Angela Lansbury it's got a great score you know it only ran 12 previews and nine performances. Uh, the producer at Columbia was like, we have to make a cast album. So we like brought everyone in to make the cast album. Thank God he did because, you know, we have this really interesting record of it. The only Tony nomination was for Herbert Ross's choreography, which I thought was kind of interesting that after that, Sondheim really moved into a into shows where dancing is not really a big part of it. Yeah, and I think that's something about this that I hadn't realized until recent years when I've been reading more about Anyone Can Whistle is that the choreography was very distinct Yeah, um, and is something that everyone notes. Um, I think that, and you've seen, you saw the Encores production. I did. Is the book as heinous as everyone makes it out to be? You know... It's definitely weird. I think it's hard to sort of look at it objectively because it's like, you know, you go in with the baggage. Like, I obviously already sort of knew and loved the score. I don't know. I didn't think it was that bad. It's definitely, like, weird and silly. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that people did not want it. But, like, as a one-off, it was as a one-off, like, concert experience, it was definitely entertaining. And, like, I think that is the right way to present it. It is kind of an oddity, like a curio rather than an actual working musical. Yeah. That's my take on it. It was, I think it was about 10 years ago at this point, so it's not super fresh in my mind. But, you know, it is kind of like they thought they were the smartest guys in the room. But in retrospect, that kind of social commentary that they were doing in it ended up being 
ended up coming true in in some ways. Yeah. I feel like in any passage about anyone can whistle on anything, they like have that George Firth quote that's like I think it's George Firth. You know what I'm talking about where it's like satire always closes on a Saturday night. <laughs> oh, it was George S. Kaufman. George S. Kaufman once said that satire is what closes on Saturday night. <laughs> and uh, that's what happened. Yeah, and I think also, like, it was coming out in this year with all these blockbusters also. So it's like, even if it wasn't what it is, it, like, it had a lot of competition. Yeah, and it led to Sondheim next going on to uh, writing the lyrics for another flop, Do I Hear Waltz? Oh, yeah. And it, I believe this was Angela Lansbury's first role in a musical. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, that collaboration between them obviously ended up bearing more fruit later everyone here hates me at length probably lynch me if they had the strength but me and my town me and my town we just want to be loved we just want to be loved we just want to be loved just loved our friendship is lovely and the courtship supply but give her a township township every time Shall we talk about plays a little bit? Yeah, this was like a really busy play season. Luther, which was a play, a British play that was written a few years earlier by John Osborne, was the play that won Best Play. Albert Finney, who we know from Annie, <laughs> played Martin Luther. And this and another play, Dylan, which was like about Dylan Thomas's last days, like feel like unremarkable biopic type fodder where it was just like really straightforward and I think that you know they're kind of anchored by these like great performances by these like demigods of men Mm -hmm. um and the most interesting thing about Luther in particular is that like apparently like his bowel issues were like given a lot of focus on it martin luther yeah martin luther's like stomach problems (laughs) Wow, that's so embarrassing like according to the review it was like almost made to seem howard taubman is like it's like really great except for one thing and this is a quote here we come to the reservation because of luther's gripes about his bowels and the script's recurrent imagery of the lactarine the play leaves the implication that had it not been for a German monk's constipation, the course of history might have been different. Um, which just, like, seems really odd. <laughs> you know, I think it's, like, I get the impulse behind it to be, like, we have to remind ourselves that these legendary figures are also human, and it's, like, you know, everybody poops, but it's kind of, that's very funny. Yeah. And then Alec Guinness, who, you know, is, like, a very accomplished actor who won um, an Oscar earlier in the 50s for The Bridge Over the River Kwai, starred as Dylan Thomas in this kind of, like, last days of Dylan Thomas's American tour. Both of these plays have kind of, in some way, been forgotten to history, I would say. 
Um, especially compared to some of the season's other offerings, which we have After the Fall, which is like arguably Arthur Miller's most autobiographical play about, you know, him kind of like inspecting all of these like historic traumas that he's experienced while he's kind of like dealing with his deteriorating relationship with Marilyn Monroe. And I have recently read the play and it's, you know, it's not as like blaming of Marilyn Monroe as I thought it would be, but it was, you know, it's not Arthur Miller strongest work no he was not so nice to her yeah but the person who really got to like shine in this play which was directed by elia kazan his wife barbara loden who in her own right is a an extreme genius whose life was cut tragically short by cancer played marilyn monroe it was really clear to everyone that she wasn't just doing a marilyn monroe impression i guess through elia kazan's method acting embodied the role and kind of was the toast of broadway that season in the play category <laughs> june havoc who we know as baby june now dainty june now dainty june. now middle-aged june had this show marathon 33 which was kind of based on her memoir with elements of they shoot horses don't they and the play starred julie harris and it was directed by june havoc but it was kind of about the like a depression era dance marathon in the Midwest. And I think that it's kind of had a hard life after this, but it was like kind of like a mix. You know, it's like funny because I watched some clips from, from some regional productions of it and it just seems like all the like kind of interstitial, it seems like a play that has like all the interstitial gypsy sequences <laughs> like of them like performing on the vaudeville circuit like kind of woven into it. And then last off, I think, in my opinion, the most noteworthy play this season, I think, was Edward Albee's uh, Ballad of the Sad Cafe, which was based on the Carson McCullers novella. It's worth a read. It's not performed nearly as much as I think it should be, but, you know, coming off of Virginia Woolf, and this kind of falls in between Virginia Woolf and another one of his plays that I love, Tiny Alice. I think it's some of his best work, and it has, like, a weird poetry to it that I don't necessarily associate with him. And then also this season, another heavy hitter. This was kind of like Neil Simon's breakout year where Barefoot in the Park had its initial run. And while it wasn't super successful at the Tonys, it was kind of like the birth of Neil Simon as this celebrity playwright and also Mike Nichols as a theater director. Mike Nichols had already kind of made a name for himself as a comedian, but Neil Simon was like part of why the show was so successful is that Mike's judgment um, and discernment was so good. And, you know, from that little Neil Simon kind of like uh, <laughs> blew up and he even talks about how like his life really changed and it kind of like threw him into celebrity. Yeah, I mean, that is a big one, but it didn't win. Luther won. Yeah, it's like, you know, and David Merrick produced Luther, and I think mm. it was just kind of this, like, it's, like, just so surprising that something that's so... I think out of all these plays, the one that is, like, most in... And probably because of the, the successful movie, movie yeah. but, you know, this Neil Simon play that really, I think, more than any of the others captured, like, what New York... What life in New York was like at the time. You know, it was kind of, like, about these, like, newlyweds who are like moving into an unfurnished apartment and like everything goes wrong. <laughs> and I think this season kind of shows uh, now that we can sort of reflect on the whole thing is like this kind of symbiotic relationship between Broadway and Hollywood in terms of like having these plays and musicals adapted is really what gives them longevity in a lot of ways and like 
how, you know, Barefoot in the Park means that it's now kind of remembered forever and like Barbara Streisand getting to be in both the Funny Girl and Hello Dolly movies was such a coup for her because, you know, now Carol Channing's performance is not immortalized Mm -hmm. and like how, you know, She Loves Me having the movie fall through was such a blow for people kind of remembering that show until, you know, it came back in the 90s. And frequently these movie adaptations don't really end up capturing what is special about the play or about the show because it's a different medium, but it's like ultimately that is a lot of people's first exposure to these shows and Mm -hmm. and kind of becomes definitive by default movies feed the theater and theater feeds the movies exactly i guess that's it yeah (laughs) next time we're gonna be doing 2008 in the heights we got patty and gypsy uh whoopie hosted yeah you know fun all around so you can follow us on twitter and instagram at my little tonys you can email us at my little tonys podcast at gmail.com well, yeah we love hearing from you please we reach do. out yeah did i say our email address yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um yes rate us five stars on itunes and uh i think that's it yeah Goodbye. <laughs> bye bye <laughs>